The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Are bees thriving, barely surviving or somewhere in between? On today's episode of Parse for Billion, we pose that question before a live audience of scientists. Hello and welcome back once again to Parse Per Billion, the podcast from Bloomberg Environment. I'm your host, David Schultz. So you may recall that last year we came out with Business of Bees, a special six-part podcast series that looked at everything going on with bees and other pollinators from all angles. If you haven't listened yet, definitely check it out. Business of Bees was hosted by Bloomberg Environment's Adam Allington, who covers agricultural issues here. Well, Adam just got back from Seattle, where he spoke about bees at the annual conference of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, also known as AAAS. This is a really big event, not just for scientists from all over the world, but also companies and advocacy groups. So today, we're bringing you Adam's onstage discussion from Seattle about the current state of pollinators in the environment. Joining him is Peter Nelson, the director of a new documentary film called The Pollinators about commercial bee pollination and Donna McDermott, a PhD student from Emory University studying the impact of pesticides on bumblebees. Let's head over to Seattle right now to hear the discussion. Peter, I think like me, uh, in my podcast, I spent you know quite a bit of time speaking to commercial pollinators and beekeepers, and I was curious how you got exposed to this interesting community of, of people and what your connection was and why you decided to make a film about it. Yes, I'm a a 30-plus year beekeeper, backyard beekeeper in New York State, and then I'm also a cinematographer is my day job. And so it's kind of a a combination of passions for me. It got me interested in in the story of moving bees, particularly with these commercial migratory beekeepers. Um, The movement of managed bees was a story that a lot of people didn't really know, and how important it is to our food system was not really, I think, as well understood as it could be. So I decided to take a crack at it. Indeed. It is quite the sight to see how, how these bees are moved around the country on these big semis and they're put out in these fields and, the, you know, pallets of hives, you know, hundreds and hundreds. And Donna, you know, the same question to you. How did you get connected with bee research? And then I guess what is it about the bumblebees that you study that makes them like an ideal candidate for this kind of animal behavior study? So as an undergraduate, I started doing research in an animal behavior lab. And that was fascinating, just the different ways that insects have this incredibly sophisticated cognition, uh, even though they're so small. And I decided that I wanted to apply that work to a study system that had some relevance to human needs and human well-being, which is pollinators. Uh, So bumblebees are actually a great intersection of both really cool complicated behavioral dynamics uh, and also really sophisticated cognition. So we can learn about how bees can count or how bees identify one another uh, and how that changes with the environment. And Peter, it should be noted that, you know, honeybees in relation to all of the bee species, you know, know, close to 20,000 bee species in the world, honeybees are really you know, the only ones who are able to exist in these massive 
communities, these massive colonies, and then also produce honey in the quantities that they do. And so, you know, historically, humans and bees got together way back. And, you know, even the connection between putting bees in orchards and things is, you know, goes back hundreds of years. But tell me how this sort of modern pollination economy got started. Yeah, well, it's important to note that um, honeybees are not native to North America, right. which, is, uh, which is a key point. But the, um, the movement of bees um, around the country has really changed with the simplification of agriculture post-World War II. They've moved bees for many, many decades. But post-World War II, um, they really started amplifying the increase uh, and betterment of transportation, better roads, and then the change, again, the simplification of uh, agriculture, the more chemically dependent agriculture, has kind of led to this uh, combination of things to move bees around the country in for pollination. And is there a particular crop that jump-started this, or what crops specifically are honeybees sort of critical for? Well, right now, as we sit here, there are over 2 million beehives that are in almonds in California, in the Central Valley of California, and that's the biggest pollination event in the world. And the majority of those came from different parts of the country, from Florida, from Idaho, from North Dakota, um, and they're moved in on trucks for that pollination. And it's kind of like the biggest monoculture uh, that is dependent upon honeybees that we have. But there are about 400 crops, common crops, fruits, vegetables, and nuts in our diet that are dependent or very, very important to uh, be pollinated by bees. The statistic that I've heard quoted quite often is that you know, one in three bites of food that we eat is dependent on pollination. But within those foods, you know, many of the fruits and vegetables. And, and Donna, are uh, bumblebees as overlapping on these agricultural landscapes in, in any way? Yeah, so bumblebees are actually commercially reared for greenhouse tomato pollination. They have a pollination technique where they vibrate their wings at the resonant frequency of a flower. This is the buzz pollination. Yes. Um, I don't study bees in the field. I study them in the lab. Uh, but I get my bees from the same company that supplies them to greenhouses. Well, that's an interesting jumping off point for, you know, the ways that honeybees, Apis mellifera, aren't the only species who are, who, who pollinate flowers who are beneficial to agriculture. Are there other bees that are also acting in, in some of these fields, these orchards that are, are, are beneficial pollinators? Absolutely. There are thousands of bee species in North America, and many of them are more accurate or more persistent pollinators than honeybees on a range of different crops. So some of those can be managed, like the blue orchard mason bee or bumblebees, uh, but many of them live in wild uh, plant arrangements, live in the dirt, uh, and come out by their own initiative. And, but, and what's related to that is in, in what makes honeybees, and I'm not a totally honeybee person, but the honeybees have that unique ability to be able to scale up their population really quickly in the, the warm time of the year. And they have the ability to be moved in massive amounts without too much ill effect on them. So they kind of, farmers, I think, look at them as an opportunity to bring in almost like an insurance policy to insure pollination. Well, and you had mentioned almonds, which are, a, you know, as we speak, you know, in February is typically the time many bees throughout the country are not that active. And so bees actually do not hibernate. They stay in their hives all, all year long, kind of buzzing, keeping warm. But we started moving them around and sort of waking them up because of almonds. And then after that, is it correct that other farmers found a, a sort of benefit in commercial pollination that 
they didn't know existed or that was sort of, you know, you kind of hint at, like an insurance policy. Talk a little bit about that if you could. Yeah, so once the almond pollination is done, we'll start there because it's the biggest and, and first big pollination of the year. Once that is done, those orchards become basically a food desert for bees, for any bee. And so the beekeepers have to move the bees out somewhere else so that they can live or they have to feed them. And so they've sort of worked to find other crops that bees will work with. So right after pollination um, of the almonds, then the beekeepers will move them off to, to cherries, to apples, to plums, to citrus in different parts of the country. And they create these roots around the country that where the bees are moved. And, and some of them go directly into honey production. But a lot of them get moved into other, uh, other pollinations, whether it's blueberries or cranberries. I think something a lot of people might be interested to hear is that these commercial pollination operations, you know, have, you know, thousands of hives, you know, they don't even harvest the honey in most cases. It's kind of, the, and they leave it in the hives for the bees as feed. Was there a time when commercial beekeeping stopped being about honey and started being about pollination? Well, there, a lot of the commercial beekeepers have a dual revenue stream. So they have the pollination services, which is the majority for many of them, 60% or more of their annual income, and then 40% for honey production, depending on the beekeeper. Some of them go after almonds will go directly into honey production. Other ones will go and do uh, secondary or, or third pollinations or fourth pollinations. So they do this kind of, it depends on the beekeeper and, and who their clients are and where they live. Um, but like almond honey, I asked people, I said, why almond honey? I've never even heard of almond honey and they said well it doesn't really taste very good so they don't really sell it but they use that to feed the bees and you had mentioned this earlier peter the fact that these beehives which are put in orchards are then moved later on and and donna i assume that is obviously not true for the native bees who are living in these ecosystems the farmers may wait to spray until the commercial bees are out of the field but if you're a ground nesting bee Maybe you're out of luck. Right. They might be nesting in the fields themselves. And because of that, obviously, like many of these bees are exposed to pesticides and chemicals, the honeybees aren't. And is there anything that we can do to manage against that? Or is it, is it hard to maintain an ecosystem where native bees have enough food to eat in an agricultural landscape? Well, I think the first challenge is identifying how many native bees are exposed to these pesticides uh, and what the effects of that is. Um, The issue with many native bees in terms of research and understanding how to uh, help with bee conservation in that way is that they're really hard to find, and it's really hard to find their nests. Honeybees, you know, it takes a couple of days, but you can find where honeybees are coming from. But you can't do that with native bees. It's been, it's been explained to me that, I mean, in, in some sense, honeybees are almost like livestock. You know, they, we shelter them, we feed them, we take care of them, we build structures to put them in. You know, they're kind of like, a, like an agricultural animal, and we can grow their population as we need to, Peter. Is, is that kind of the distinction that you see between native bees and, and honeybees? Oh, definitely, yeah. The USDA considers honeybees livestock. And so um, it, is, it is interesting, and I think that, you know, the... the the honeybees, the, the beekeepers have the ability to, as you say, you know, feed them and take care of them and, and treat them for diseases. Um, but the native pollinators really can't move away from that chemical exposure or the habitat loss through agriculture that affects a lot of the native bees. I think that's a really important thing. I think this issue of, of the role of pollinators and bees in ecology and, and environmental issues actually really 
was triggered and came out during the uh, colony collapse scare of, you know, around 2006, 2007. I know that's when I sort of started hearing about bees a lot in relation to the environment. And so I'm curious, Donna, what, if anything, has really changed since that time? Have we learned more about the link between either pesticides or agriculture and, and colony collapse? You know, what causes it? Is it still an issue today? From what I understand, honeybee losses over winter between seasons are still happening and at quite high levels. Um, But I think one of the best things that we got out of the colony collapse disorder, one of the silver linings, uh, was understanding that honeybees are a great indicator species because people are checking their numbers so often. Uh, But really, they're only the tip of the iceberg for understanding how these changes in our environment are changing lots of different species. And we're going to pause things right there for a brief moment to bring you this message. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Okay, thank you. And now back to the podcast. And it should be noted, I mean, the, the colony collapse scare was an environmental issue specific to, to Apis mellifera, to honeybees. But that isn't to say that there isn't maybe some overlap between issues that impact honeybees and issues that impact native bees, right, Peter? Would you say that there's some synergy that, that exists between the species that make them, you know, not entirely different from one another? Oh, totally. I think that, you know, the, the, as, as Donna said, the, the, if you can look at it as a benefit, it was the money that came into uh, pollinator studies as a result of the colony class, which scared everybody. And is, there's still losses. are still high. These beekeepers, depending on the state, I think the, you know, the losses can go up to 60%. I think the average was just under 38% last year right. for an annual loss, which is pretty devastating to think about what business can support that. But it's also, it's led to, I think, to a general awareness about um, not only honeybees, but all the native bees. It's kind of like a, there's sort of a gateway insect in a lot of ways for many people. And I think that's, it's, it's kind of, the th- honeybees are, are easy to study because they are movable and their population does, it is much harder to, to get those native bees and figure out where they live and how they, because their life cycle is very different as, um, as solitary bees or semi-social bees like uh, bumblebees. It's much harder to study them. And the threats that are aligned against bees are, it's not just pesticides. This is something we've learned about colony collapse, that it could be multiple threats, pesticides, habitat loss, and also invasive species like uh, the varroa mite, uh, an invasive mite from Asia that has really devastated commercial beekeepers specifically. Is there a connection at all between these different issues that may be explaining some of these higher-than-normal losses? Because in the 80s, Beekeepers told me that, you know, it was normal to see 10% annual die-off, and now we're seeing upwards of 40 in some cases. So could there be a link in that case? Well, you mentioned habitat loss, and I think that that must be huge um, in terms of both loss of places for bees to forage, so wildflowers and things like that, 
uh, and also places for bees to make nests, particularly these wild bees that nest in the ground or nest in rotting logs um, or nest in you know, plant stems. Those are the kinds of things that a lot of people clean up out of their yard. And Peter, same question for you of role on mites. I'm assuming since you sort of spent this time, so much time with commercial beekeepers, that was something they must have talked a lot about. Yeah, every beekeeper has a problem with varroa mite, unless you live in Australia. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a big problem for all beekeepers. And if you don't treat for it, you're basically out of business. And what, and what do the mites do? I, I mean, do they kill the bees outright? They feed out the fat body of the bee. So it's kind of like they sort of um, suck the liver out, if you will, almost of the, um, of the bees. And so it, it weakens them. Um, and uh, it, if you don't treat them, if they get to a certain level, and they also transmit viruses, which is very important. They transmit viruses to the bees. And so that, when, when bees are exposed to pesticides, which maybe weaken their immune system, and then they're exposed to viruses, plus the feeding on the varro- of the varroa mite, and poor nutrition, which is an, another factor of a diversity of nutrition for pollen and uh, for bees is really important. So all those things conspire, and it creates this sort of feedback loop that is really difficult for bees to handle. And here we are taking, in some cases, you know, 90% of the commercial beehives in the country and putting them all together in one spot, kind of creating the ideal way to spread a virus, right? Very true. So Uh, so the thing that scares me is, is like when you have one species that we're dependent upon in one place at one time. I mean, we've seen that with other things, with potatoes, famously in Ireland, bananas in in the past. So it's, uh, it's really kind of makes me nervous. Donna, I know you're not an environmental toxicologist, but talk a bit, if you could, about the difficulty of, say, treating for mites and, you know, trying to, in a sense, kill a bug on a bug. It must be very difficult to do. Sure. (laughs) Well, you know, there are treatments for varroa mites, but I've been told quite difficult to kill them outright. Yeah, totally. It's, it's, they've... um, there's some new work that's being, I just read about, that they're working on the gut biome on varroa mite, which looks very encouraging. But it's interesting to know that the varroa is a mite that jumped from one species of honeybee, the Apis serrana, onto Apis mellifera, and which is an Asian thing. So the Asian serrana has dealt with varroa mite for a long time, and, and it sort of co-evolved and learned how to deal with it. And varroa mellifera, the European honeybee, is still trying to figure that out. And so they're not really prepared or they haven't gotten there yet how to do it. And they're working on it with genetics that make bees that are better at grooming off, uh, off the varroa mite and, and things like that. But it takes some time. And you had mentioned viruses, obviously. Donna, if a bee is weakened by, say, a virus, does that make it more susceptible than to the impacts of pesticides. Could you talk a bit about that? Oh, sure. Um, In the same way that if a human is weakened by a virus, they maybe are not necessarily as good at collecting food for themselves or overcoming a particularly cold morning. And in terms of pesticides and agriculture, there was a big shift, right? Maybe about, uh, you know, in the last 20 years away from older insecticides, the the organophosphate insecticides, which were quite toxic not only to insects, but also to some mammals, to this newer generation of systemic insecticides called neonicotinoids. Could you talk about how neonicotinoids or neonics differ in in their mode of action compared to some of these older pesticides? So these neonicotinoids are, uh, doing a more specialized thing in the insect brain. 
which is really effective in getting rid of insects, and as you said, less effective in killing uh, other animals. Um, but even if these pesticides have a lot of sublethal effects on bees and on other insects that are harder to pin down. Right, so sublethal effects are not killing the bee outright. You don't see these massive die-offs that, you know, outside of beehives, but maybe uh, impacting their ability to sort of navigate or, you know, is that what... Talk about how your research is trying to assess the, the impact of neonics specifically on bee behavior. Yeah, so I study bumblebees, and bumblebees do a thing where if they're foraging, they look for what flowers other bees are visiting, and they follow that social cue to go visit the flower. Uh, but when bees, when I exposed bees to neonicotinoid pesticides, uh, thiamethoxam specifically, they totally ignored social cues from other bees, which takes away, you know, a handy shortcut that they might otherwise be using to identify the best flowers. And, and Peter, these neonicotinoids, it should be noted that, like, these are the most common class of insecticides in agriculture today. And, 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 I mean, there's been, they've been called the bee-killing pesticide by some people. The um, people at the, at, at the pesticide and chemical companies would disagree. They would say that the way these chemicals are applied is actually a much more targeted way of applying pesticides, since in many cases they're actually coated right on the seed, that seed's planted in the ground. Does that negate the impact of, of these chemicals on bees? Well, it's kind of a different thing. I mean, because one, one thing that's interesting about the neonics is they're safer for humans to handle. That's one advantage of them. But they also work systemically. So they go up through the vascular system of the plant. And so if a, if a pest bites on the plant, it would pick up the neonicotinoids and theoretically die. The problem for bees is that it goes into the nectar and into the pollen. And so the bees pick it up. Even if it's on corn, that corn blows onto other stuff. And bees do use corn pollen. And so they pick up sometimes lethal doses and sometimes sublethal doses, often sublethal doses. But the application on coated seeds is really important because that's not considered a pesticide application. It's if it's coated on the seed before it's put in the ground. And that's interesting. And so the dust that comes off of that during the application sometimes can lead to, you know, byproducts because they're very lethal for bees and even, you know, in high amounts. But the sublethal doses is something that's really interesting. And also much more persistent in the environment itself. Even if you plant it below the ground, Donna, these chemicals are getting into the, into the water table, into neighboring plants and into the soil where they could potentially come into contact with native bees again. This is a threat that they're exposed to sort of on a consistent basis. Right, if they're getting into the nectar, if they're getting into the pollen. Um, In the time we have left, I wanted to sort of touch on policies that may help us protect bees. You know, in 2017, the EPA listed or added the rusty patch bumblebee, the first bee was, that was added to the endangered species list, which is kind of a big, big moment for bee conservation. But bumblebees are quite different than, say, a gray wolf in a national park. You know, they're everywhere. So are there things we can do to help provide the habitat they need? Sure. Actually, I was just talking to a good friend of mine who is an environmental consultant, and since the rusty patch bumblebee was placed on the endangered species list, that's now a species that she needs to look out for when consulting with companies that want to do construction. But it's such a different animal from most other species on the list that 
you know, they don't know how to find the Rusty Patch Bumblebee, or if they do find it, how big of an area that limits construction on. Right. I mean, it's, it's not a simple question of establishing a preserve and then helping that species sort of slowly grow, right, Peter? Like, unlike a lot of environmental issues, which seem very big and overwhelming at times, Helping bees is something we can all do, right? How, you know, is there a way you can do that on your own property? Yeah, there's so many things that people can do. And, and, you know, personal use of pesticides and fungicides on your lawn, getting rid of your lawn is a huge thing because that is a monoculture, right? It's the biggest monoculture I think we have in North America. And so you, you could introduce other species like clover and thyme, flowering thyme, into a lawn to make that, make that better. Getting involved in policy on a state level um, is important. Washington, where we are right now, has a pollinator protection. Uh, for habitat, for uh, establishing native plants and establishing those, uh, those floral resources, even if they're weeds, which is really important. Herbicides are a big factor because when they spray the side of a road, you're killing uh, uh, forage and therefore good nutrition for bees by killing what is weeds. You know? So that's really something everybody can do about this. In fact, that seems to be the case in a lot of cities now are becoming these kind of pollinator refuges, right, Donna, where... Weedy areas and medians and so forth are being converted into bee habitat. Yeah, so people become interested in making corridors, so like a string of gardens that bees can move along, uh, or patches that support bee nesting and bee foraging. We're almost out of our time here, but, you know, a lot of people are into beekeeping and and backyard beekeeping, but it's just the, the thing I find that's so interesting is the ways that bees, honeybees and native bees, are both these really charismatic animals that have these very fascinating life cycles and and how the two are kind of doing a lot of the heavy PR work, if you will, for some of these issues impacting impacting insects. Well, so I want to thank you both so much for coming here and talking to me about this. Thank you. Thank you all so much for being here. Thank you. That was Adam Allington speaking in Seattle at the annual meeting of AAAS. If you're into this kind of thing, definitely check out Business of Bees, our six-part podcast breaking down everything going on with pollinators. We also have much more about pollinators and lots of other topics at our website, news.bloombergenvironment.com. If you want to chat with us on social media, use the hashtag parts per bee. That hashtag, once again, is parts per bee. Today's episode of Parts Per Billion was produced by myself, along with Marissa Horn, Jessica Coombs, and Josh Block. The music for this episode is A Message by Jazar, and It's That Simple by Frank Novon, Peter Bento, and Jim Harbour. They were used under a Creative Commons license, Thanks for listening. Cases and Controversies is all about the Supreme Court. Oh, come on. You know, come on. Well, I agree with you. Be serious. We sit down with leading practitioners and scholars to break down these cases. I mean, I'm glad you brought that up, so I didn't have to. Oh, I know that. That is interesting. I guess my imagination is running wild. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) Tune in every week for our deep dive and sneak peek episodes wherever you get your podcasts. As always, check out the latest at news.bloomberglaw.com. <laughs> the countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com.